0: we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. Well, let's open God's Word together and be finding, please, the New Testament book of Matthew, we be finding the gospel according to Matthew. And in a brief moment, we'll begin our reading with Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And as you're finding your place there in Matthew chapter 23, I must ask a question. How many of you among us have siblings? Would you raise your hand, please? You have siblings, yes. Keep your hand up now. How many of you among us are the youngest or the younger, if you have two of those siblings? Would you keep your hand up? Raise them real high, please, 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 yes. All right, I want everyone to look around, my hands included. These are the spiritual among us, all right? We are the remnant. Good, you may put your hands down. I'm grateful to have my family and my two siblings with me. My oldest brother, Michael, he is at the top of the rung. And then my middle sister, Marty, she is the rose between two thorns. I recall a lot of wonderful stories growing up as the youngest sibling. I was the spoiled one, not the spiritual one. And one story that really comes to my mind in particular, I'll not get into the specifics of it because it is a story that constantly replicated itself over and over again. And I believe it might be a story that you could relate to. I believe it's a story that you could probably relate to even if you don't have siblings, if you attended school for some time or you worked a job for some time. Have you ever been in a situation where someone in authority, whether that be a parent or a grandparent or a boss or a teacher, calls in you and a group of people, and they begin addressing one particular person amongst a group of people. They have a primary target, if you will. And they call out that primary target, that one person, for some particular action. Maybe they did something they weren't supposed to do, such as, cheating in class or disrespecting a teacher or having their phone out while at work. They did something of that nature and they're just hounding that primary target and from West Virginia we like to call it they're getting chewed out, right? That's King James English for being rebuked and I can recall my mom just chewing out my brother and I'm standing off in the background and there's something inside of me that is just sensing the guilt that I imagine my brother was feeling because He wasn't the only one that was guilty. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Now, I've just confessed my faults before the church, so obviously I've felt something like that. But the truth of the matter is this is nothing new. There are times where someone is speaking to one specific person, but it affects the audience in whole. And as we come to Matthew chapter 23, I like to use my sanctified imagination and just believe that the disciples were in a similar situation. In Matthew chapter 23, Christ is delivering, he is preaching his final public sermon. Can you imagine that? And out of all the things he could have addressed, and out of all the targets that he could have specifically pointed at in his sermon, he addresses really the religious people. The disciples were there, other casualties, if you will, were in the multitude also, but Throughout Matthew chapter 23, you'll see Jesus referencing two religious groups of people, the scribes and the party that I'm most interested in today, the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Are you familiar with the Pharisees? You see, first century Judaism, they had religious sects, religious groups, and one of these groups was the Pharisees, and they were these self-appointed, self-righteous leaders who took it upon themselves to ensure that everybody else followed the law to a T. They loved to parade themselves about the cities and about the streets, chins held high and chests puffed up, gaining all the public attention that they could. All the while, on the inside, they weren't what they appeared to be. And Christ hated it. Might I remind you today that God hates pride. He hates pride. And that was the earmark of a Pharisee. And as Christ begins delineating through all these things that the scribes and particularly the Pharisees were doing wrong, I read through this text in Matthew chapter 23 and I pretend like I'm the younger brother off in the distance just listening. That's good. That's good. Yes, that's great. And then as I began to ponder the principle of what Christ was getting at, I begin to sense guilt and conviction. It's not the external that I share with them. No, I'm not a Pharisee in name. I might attest to that. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and three days later he rose again according to the scriptures. I am a Christian. I cannot be a Pharisee by name. I don't add to the law. I do not add to my salvation. However, I can be a Pharisee by nature. And I read this text and some selected verses from this chapter And I'm convicted. The Holy Spirit, His job, reproving, He reproves me. He convinces me of my sin. He convicts me of my sin. And so for the next few moments, I want to read some verses to you, and I want to preach underneath this heading. The Pharisee in me. The Pharisee in me. Let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, where Christ says this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat, And swallow a camel. He's using a lot of hypothetical words here. Verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup. And platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly Appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I want to draw your attention to the last statement which we read at the conclusion of verse 28. Perhaps you'd like to underscore it. But within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. If this were an audience of people who aren't majorly professing Christians, I would dare say you might think this text is hateful. This sermon is harsh, but as believers, we know that from the same heart that Christ spoke these words is from the same heart that he cried at the tomb of his dead friend, a dead friend he would later raise knowing that he had the power to raise him. He still wept. And it is from that same heart that he looked out on his kindred city and wept over their sinful wickedness and moral depravity, if you will. It's the same heart that is speaking here in Matthew chapter 23, a heart full of painful sorrow, angry at the results of sin, angry at the results of pride. And he speaks primarily to whom? The scribes and the Pharisees. But the disciples are sitting there, excuse me, I'm listening now. And I think to myself, this message just isn't for the scribes and Pharisees. This is for me. This is for you, Christian follower of Christ. You may not be a Pharisee in name, but we all have within us that unredeemed flesh that we just carry around on a chain that we can't get rid of until we enter into the portals of heaven someday that craves and longs and desires the very same things that the Pharisees craved, longed for, and desired. We all have a Pharisee in us. So I want to pose to you two questions tonight that I believe will help us to identify if that Pharisee within us is ruling and reigning in our lives. Just two questions. The first one is this. Perhaps you'd like to write it down. Does your biblical knowledge outweigh your biblical obedience does your biblical knowledge outweigh your biblical obedience have you ever been around somebody who knew something and wanted you to know that they knew it have you ever been around somebody like that you, you talk to them for five seconds and boom they're bragging on their knowledge right well I think well allow me to interject I struggle with that sometimes I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. I'm the most hopeful sports fan in America, and I know everything that's wrong with the program. If you want to hear my opinion interjected, just talk about football for five seconds. I'll jump right in. I'll let you know what I know. The Pharisees were much like that, but in a carnal sense, more likely in a natural sense. They had a way of flaunting about what they knew. As a matter of fact, let's go back a few verses. Go back to verse 5 at the beginning of the chapter. Matthew chapter 23, verse 5. I want you to see the extent to which they would go to brag about their Bible knowledge. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 23. But all their works, the works of the Pharisees, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. I think we know that. Watch this, though. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They make broad their phylacteries. Would you say the word phylacteries with me on the count of three? I've been preaching to kids for the past year and a half of my life, so you're just going to have to do it with me. One, two, three. That's it, yes, and I heard it back there. Very well done. Is that Joseph back there I said that? Great job. Phylacteries. Phylacteries, yes. Probably a word you've not used recently in your modern vocabulary, the phylacteries. These Pharisees, they knew the law up and down. They were experts, the scribes as well. But the Pharisees would go a step farther. It's recorded that they could have added at least 50 volumes more of rules and regulations to the law. But they knew the law. They knew the prophets. They knew the books of poetry. They were experts in it. Even so much that they would go a step farther and they would take what God had commanded to the Jewish people and they would apply it in a way that God didn't intend for them to apply the law You see, God had commanded the Jewish people to always keep the word in their minds and in their hands, meaning he wanted them to be thinking constantly about the word and constantly busy about the word. But these Pharisees took it literally, and they said, okay, we'll do that. This is what we'll do. We're gonna take a phylactery. Here's what it is. It's like a palm-sized box. And if you've got the hands of my grandfather, which are about three times the size of my hands, it's probably not palm-sized, okay? But they take a palm-sized box, And inside of that box, that cube, they would roll up many scrolls of the Old Testament. And then they would stuff those scrolls inside of that box, and then they would bind the box, make it look a little bit prettier than it would with leather, sometimes black leather. And then they'd take that phylactery box, and they would strap it to their foreheads, right between their eyeballs, just like the verse said. They took the verse literally. And sometimes they would bind that phylactery to their forearms. Can you see them parading themselves through the cities now? You ever talk to somebody and they've got something in their teeth or something's wrong with their clothes and you can't look them in the eyes when you're talking to them? You wouldn't have looked these guys in the eyes either, right? Those are the phylacteries. And you'd be walking down the road and you'd encounter these people and, well, he knows the Bible. You keep on walking. But they didn't stop there. They wanted you to know how much they knew Scripture. Look what else they did the end of verse 5. And they enlarged the borders of their garments. Now, you're familiar with the Jewish customs. They would wear these robes, and then they would have tassels about the robes. And these tassels, much like a graduation tassel, very similar, would be blue right? And in the Old Testament, if you read through Deuteronomy and Numbers, you would see that God had commanded this, and they did apply it the way it was supposed to be applied. And they would have their tassels hanging about their robes. That way, wherever they walked, when they would look down, they would be reminded of the heavenly perspective they should have and of the word of God that he would commanded to them. And as they walk about, they have their tassels. But The Pharisees wanted it to be a little different for them. They wanted to go a step beyond. Look at what they did. They enlarged the borders. Literally, they made the tassels much, much bigger than what was normal. Do you see them now walking through the city? Phylactery here, phylactery here, phylactery here, big garment here, border here, border here, and walking around, probably starting to be bogged down a little bit, making themselves stand out. Why is that? They wanted people to know what they knew they were prideful in their bible knowledge but they didn't stop there look at our text verse 23 woe unto you scribes and pharisees hypocrites watch now for ye pay tithe of mint you know what mint is it's common now the little leaf plant and anise that is much like the dill plant that we make our dill pickles with by the way presley loves pickles surprise surprise and cumin that's just a ground spice these are all familiar common kitchen items and they took the law and went a step farther with it and went into their kitchen cabinet and started going about and if they had a mint leaf with 10 other leaves surrounding it they would take one and this one's for God and they take the remaining nine and say these are for me and then they would come to their cumin and they would divide it up accordingly a tenth for God the other for me and so forth. And they were so scrupulous, so detailed. And these religious habits that they had developed, that they had neglected what was more important. See, look what Christ says. He says, you pay the tithe. By the way, it's a good thing to do. Abraham did it far before, far long before, excuse me, the law commanded it. Christ commanded it, and we practice it in the New Testament. But watch now. He says, you've tied these things and have omitted maybe you'd like to circle that word omitted you've disregarded you've set aside the weightier matters of the law but they didn't stop there look at verse 24 ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel those are two of the unclean animals according to the Jews the gnat being the smallest and the camel being the biggest and obviously they didn't quite literally swallow a camel that's impossible But Christ is playing on their sin, and he says, look, you're straining at gnats. This is what they do. They would take that diluted wine of their day, and when they would make it, it was a fly-infested time, and every once in a while, a gnat would jump right into their diluted wine that they made, or they'd take that chalice, and the gnat would jump right in, and just so that gnat wouldn't get into their system because it was an unclean thing to them, even the smallest unclean thing, they would... This is where you have permission to laugh. That's what I would tell the kids right now. They would take their teeth, go like this, take the chalice and drink it and use their teeth, what? To strain, to filter the gnats. And then after drinking it, they would pluck off the gnat and I don't know what they would do with it, but hopefully they would disregard it. They would omit it, right? They would go the extra mile in the most frivolous things. They had such a biblical knowledge. As a matter of fact, they had developed convictions, most unnecessary but some necessary convictions outside of Scripture. They had an incredible biblical knowledge, but they lacked biblical obedience. They have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Verse 23, judgment, mercy, and faith. The things which Christ prioritized. Look, please, I am not supporting, I am not advocating a life that disregards the obvious commands of Scripture. That's not what I'm doing. I think we ought to have great biblical knowledge. I am a product of Christian education from K4 all the way up to my master's degree, and I praise God for it. I grew up in a Christian home, a mother that knew Scripture and sang Scripture, and a grandfather that pastored a local New Testament church and exposited the Scriptures verse by verse. I am a product of that. We ought to stand for those things. Hold on a second. I'm neither saying that we should totally disregard personal convictions that we develop from the Scriptures, those things which aren't clear in Scriptures that you personally develop as the Holy Spirit leads and guides you. I'm not advocating we disregard those things, but this is what I am saying. This is what I am asking. Are you more concerned about your religious habits and your religious preferences and your religious opinions than you are obedience to scripture because that's the life of a Pharisee you see those things they they are important but they're not the first things you you read the life of a Pharisee and you see that he could point out someone else's sin from a mile away and yet because he was so blinded by his own affection so blinded by his own preferences he couldn't recognize the own sin in his life He knew the scriptures well enough to say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But because of his own preference and because of his own pride, he couldn't identify what sin was in his life. May I say this to you? The Christian life, the Christian life is not graded by our biblical knowledge. We ought to know scripture. Wednesday night at Master Clubs, one of the greatest joys about it is watching these kids memorize verse by verse and quote them two or three weeks in a row so they actually retain it. I love it. But the Christian life's not graded by your biblical knowledge. The Christian life is graded by obedience. Have you ever wondered why Christ was so emphatic about childlike faith? Because a child didn't get caught up. And a child doesn't get caught up in all these frivolous things that I get caught up in. The Pharisee in me gets caught up in. But a child just knows one thing. Yes, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I believe you, Lord. What's in God's word? Yes, that's true. I believe it. That's the Pharisee in me. And you say, well, how can I tell if my Bible knowledge outweighs my biblical obedience? Let me ask you, who's the audience in your life what all your actions are directed toward. Why do you do what you do? Do you read your Bible just to check it off the list? Do you memorize scripture just so you can quote it and brag about it to other people? Or what what about the external things? What about the external things? Are you more concerned about debating your opinion about what's wrong with this camp and what's wrong with that camp rather than standing firm to what you know to be true and following through with Christ and delivering the message that he's obviously delivered to you? Your biblical knowledge, wonderful, but does it outweigh your biblical obedience? I've written this down. You are responsible for the truth you receive. But it doesn't stop there you are responsible to respond to the truth you receive you see god does not just deliver us his word so that we can walk around with these massive big heads and shriveled up hearts that's not it Imagine we had a scale up on this platform and a bucket at each side of the scale. For every ounce of biblical truth that God drops into the bucket, no matter how big or how small that truth is, for every ounce that God drops into that bucket, we should have an ounce of biblical obedience. Does that make sense to you? Does your Bible knowledge outweigh your biblical obedience? How can you tell? Do you lose your patience with people that disagree with you? Does your Bible knowledge outweigh your biblical obedience? That's the measuring tool number one. Here's the second question, and I'll be done. Do you prioritize your public life over your private life? Do you prioritize your public life over your private life? Verse 25, woe unto you. That's danger ahead, caution to you, dread to you, horror to you. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. He says, if we had a waiter that was bringing what you're delivering to people, if we had a waiter that had on a platter and on a cup and inside of a cup your life, the platter looks great. The cup is polished. It has an eloquent design on it. And from a distance, it is incredible. But the closer you get to it, the more you can see the inner contents of it. And they're full of your life's extortion and excess. A desire for gain. What's in it for me? an unrestrained desire for gain, one who takes advantage of people, one who's willing to step over top of people in order to get to where they want to go. That's the Pharisee in me. Continue reading, verse 26. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, whited tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Those whited sepulchers, this is another Jewish practice. And specifically around the time of the Passover, there were things which were ceremonially unclean. One of those things was the tombs of the dead. And so in order for the Jews to not touch these tombs and those traveling in the night to not accidentally stumble into one of these tombs, they would take this beautiful whitewash paint and paint it over the tombs. And in the daytime, it would glisten and shine and dazzle in the sun. And in the nighttime, it was so bright that you could tell that it was there. It would look quite pretty, but on the inside, nothing had changed. There's this beautiful white walled tomb, yes, but on the inside, it's just full of dead men's bones. Have you ever met somebody who on the outside looks like they have it all together? Maybe you've been there. Their their reputation is solid, and we ought to have a good reputation, and we ought to have a clean, polished outside. But what about the inside? What about the contents? What about the character of the individual? He says, but within they are full of dead men's bones. I think of it this way. I used to play ball an ungodly amount of time to just put it lightly I used to play it quite frequently and I would travel to Places with my friends and with teams and we would go into these gymnasiums not knowing anybody there So you got to scout the talent somehow right and you pull up and you sit down on the bleachers with your friends And you're lacing up and putting on your gear and you begin to look out and you see people doing the same thing as you Well the first way you can tell if somebody's halfway decent at the sport is well. Let's check out their gear Let's see what they're wearing right and you see them, and maybe they got the arm sleeve on one arm, and they got the leg sleeve on the same side, and it looks kind of cool. And then they pull out of their gym bag, they've got their Jordan 11s, right, solid. Okay, this guy might have it. And he, he laces up, and layup lines come around, and within five seconds of him having the ball, you realize that he's got the gear, but he doesn't have game. Have you met somebody like that? Yeah, all gear, no game, right? Well, may I spiritualize it for a moment? The Pharisee in me is great at putting up a facade. The Pharisee in me is great at fooling people. The religious lingo, the God bless you's, saying amen at the right time, saying I'm praying for you's. And look, we've all been encapsulated by such an environment that is so rich and so wonderfully blessed and a great heritage. And there are things that we ought to stick to. But look, be cautious, be cautious of putting up a front and pretending to be something you're not. Be cautious of pretending to be a spiritual person. D.L. Moody said this of reputation and character. If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. It's the difference between your public life and your private life. I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you, when the cameras are on and the spotlights are on and everything and everybody's looking at you, what your life looks like. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it's just you and maybe the closest friend you have. How are you living? In your home, with your spouse, how are you living? Or even a step farther, the most private part of your life, when you're all alone, what do you do? What are your thoughts? That's a great answer, by the way. It's a great answer. Great job, Levi. What do you do? What does your private life look like? It says that of these tombs here, that they're within full of dead men's bones. That means the closer you get, the closer you get, the closer you get, the more you can be polluted by the presence of that very tomb. There have been times in my life where if you talk to me for one minute, I'm great for you. But if you stick around me for five minutes, the bitterness will spill out. The resentment, the jealousy, the anger. May I say it this way? The Pharisee in me will take front and center stage. And my private life shows up. How do you treat the overlooked, you know? How do you treat the outcast? How do you treat the overshadowed? How do you treat somebody that is of no benefit to you? It's easy to treat the people who are on a platform well, but what about the person that nobody sees and you have an opportunity to do something for them? What does the opportunity look like when you're at the gas station and God puts it on your heart to be a witness to a person and nobody else is watching except for you and that person? What's it like then? How about that side of your private life? Or do you prioritize the public life? Are you more concerned about what people see Are you more concerned about what your social media looks like? Because at the end of the day, that's the way a Pharisee lives. I fooled people, especially at a young age. I fooled people. Perhaps you fooled people. Perhaps you are fooling people. But a forewarning to you, you cannot fool the God who knows everything. It's an uncomfortable subject. The Pharisee in me And I want you to know that time will tell, time will reveal those of us who are living this pharisaical lifestyle. One day as a Christian, you'll approach the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to give an account. You won't have to give an account for your sin, praise be to him, because he paid the price for your sin. He bore that judgment, but you will give an account to him, and you'll stand before him so that you can stand, perhaps you won't be able to. And you'll look in those piercing eyes of his. And he'll not ask you, Can you quote Psalm 23 to me? What did your Instagram following think of you and your Christianity? He'll not ask of you what your religious preference was. He'll ask you of your obedience. He'll examine your private life and he'll reward you accordingly. Perhaps you're here today and God's been probing through your heart. Perhaps you're here today and that Pharisee in you has been wounded by this passage. May I encourage you what you ought to do? It's in verse 26. Simple language. Thou blind Pharisee, here's what you ought to do. Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter. You want to take care of that Pharisee? You can't get rid of him once and for all, but I can tell you what you can do. Daily cleansing. Washing of water by the Word. Getting into the Word of God and the Scriptures just coming over you and the Holy Spirit pointing out things in your life that ought not to be. That bitterness, that jealousy, that resentment, that criticality, that hypocriticality that ought not be there. And as he points it out, like the psalmist, confess it to him. Lord, wash me thoroughly of mine iniquity. Cleanse me of all my sin. And I assure you, child of God, if we confess our sin, if we agree with him about it, that's the hard part. Seeing it for how God sees it. Removing our affections and removing our preferences and looking at our sin the very way that God looks at it and agreeing with him. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May I say it this way? From all Phariseeism. This sermon God delivered to my soul and wounded me. The Pharisee in me, he wounded me. And the challenge is not, will I just take the wound and keep on moving? The challenge is, will I respond to the wound? Faithful are the wounds of a friend confess it to him and agree with him and ask for his cleansing thank you for listening we pray that god has used his word to speak to you today if you'd like to learn more about tabernacle you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com there you'll find additional information about our church opportunities to partner with us financially as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you may god bless you and thank you once again for listening